Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I have a really engaging conversation coming up. If this is your first time hearing of the Roots of the Spirit podcast, welcome. You are so cordially welcome. And if you're a loyal listener and have been along with the podcast for a while, you know how much I appreciate you. And if you don't, just please know that you are what makes this podcast possible. I just really, really appreciate your support always. You can check out Roots of the Spirit on Facebook as well as Instagram under Roots of the Spirit. Also, you can check out my website at rootsofthespirit.com, and I'd be incredibly grateful if you like the podcast, please go on Apple Podcasts and rate and review. A shout out to Erica Swallow, who left me a review recently. I was so excited when I saw the alert, so it really, really means a lot to me. Thank you very much, Erica, and all of you for being such loyal, supportive listeners. So let's dive into today's episode. I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Todd Mealy, who I had the privilege of interviewing. Dr. Mealy is a 20-year educator at both the secondary level and in higher education. For two decades, Mealy has advocated for race consciousness in schools. He has written extensively on the topic, including the publication of seven books. His most recent book is Race Conscious Pedagogy, Disrupting Racism at Majority White Schools. He also works as the Director of Equity and Instruction at the Bond Educational Group and serves as a Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Trainer. It is my pleasure, without further ado, Dr. Todd Mealy. Dr. Todd Mealy, welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. It's an honor to have you on the show. Well, Spirit, thank you. I'm honored to be on the show. I can't express how excited I am to be talking with you once again. Thank you. Thank you. As you may know, I created Roots of the Spirit podcast to galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, race, racism, and social justice. So what a treat to have you on the show, someone who has delved so deeply into our interconnected history to make sense of our past and how that impacts our present. Someone who is literally living, practicing, and teaching anti-racism in every facet of your life. So I'm really excited for our conversation. At the top of every show, I like to briefly touch on how we met. In this instance, you and I met through one of our amazing mutual friends, Dr. Todd Allen, who is Vice President for Diversity Affairs, Professor of Communication at Messiah University in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And that's where my mother and I were speaking last January. I can't believe it's almost coming up on a year. But anyways, he introduced us and he said, He's one of us, meaning you are someone who is an anti-racism educator and who likes to learn about history and bridge the past to the present. So it's a real treat to have you on the show today. Uh, I'm I'm really glad you brought up Todd. He he got wind of uh, the course I was teaching at a predominantly white high school in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. He read about it in a newspaper article. Uh, shortly after what happened at Charlottesville. And he found my contact information. He sent me an email and said, can I visit your class? And uh, so he sat in the class. And honestly, we were, that day we were talking about um, restrictive covenants and housing segregation and redlining. And uh, 
he, I think he was impressed with, with uh, what he saw and, and he stayed in touch with me ever since. And I was doing a little bit of work on the campus where he, where he works. And um, he had told me about, you know, the, the event with, with your mom speaking. And, and uh, so he said, show early. So, so you can meet, so, you know, so I can meet your mother and uh, your mom was busy and uh, you gave me, you know, five minutes of your time. And I thought we had a good talk and here we are now, you know, almost a year later. I remember Todd saying that you were in the middle of writing a book, which is at the heart of our conversation today. And I was really excited. And then just, you know, by nature of our respective background and work, I was like, this is perfect. So really excited about that. Actually, Dr. Todd Allen was one of my first guests on the Roots of the Spirit podcast, and he actually really helped shape a major pillar of the podcast. So when I mentioned to him in the interview that I had created the podcast to have honest conversations about race and racism, he said, quoting Little Rock Nine member and scholar Dr. Terrence Roberts, you can't have honest conversations about race and racism unless you have an informed historical perspective. That really stuck with me. And so from that moment forward, I've adopted as one of my pillars of the conversations to do my part to dig as deep as possible to continue to build my informed historical perspective, which again is why I'm really excited to speak with you. You have an incredible informed historical perspective. You're the author of seven books, including your newest book, which we'll be diving into today. Race Conscious Pedagogy, Disrupting Racism at Majority White Schools. As I mentioned in your bio, to give a snapshot of the depth and breadth of your books and scholarship, you've written books and articles about the Holocaust, slavery, abolitionists, the Underground Railroad, Black Power, the AME Church, multiple <laughs> biographies, including one, Alienated American, a biography of William Howard Day, 1825 to 1900, volumes one and two, Muhammad Ali, and the list goes on. It's amazing. Uh, well, several things you brought up in that statement. One is um, you mentioned Terrence Roberts, Dr. Roberts. So he, he as you're familiar, he wrote the foreword to the book. Um, that we'll discuss. But he and I met back in 2007. Um, I was putting on um, an event for the 50th anniversary of the Little Rock Nine. And um, I reached out to him to be the keynote speaker for that event. And so we flew him in from California and we had a good 24 hours together uh, and then stayed in touch um, since that event. But you mentioned the history and that's one of the reasons, not the only reason why I ended up writing this book that we're going to discuss, but it, it's, you know, I, 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 I've spent 15 years of my professional life um, researching and writing about issues related to race and racism. And I've really followed the trajectory, you know, from anti-slavery activism before the Civil War to the period of reconstruction and then redemption uh, in the second half of the 19th century, and then follow that into the civil rights era and then black power era, all the way to, to, to contemporary, contemporary America. So like I've really taken a deep dive into the history behind all of these issues, which has formed the context for what I wrote now. And I wanted to move away from history writing. Uh, I'll return to it at some point, but I wanted to move away from writing history and do something that was, I don't know what the proper way to phrase it is, but more impactful in the profession, my, my teaching profession and the students that I'm working with. So I'm glad you mentioned that history. Thank you. The history is so important because you have that foundation from which to build from. I always, in my work, talk about the fact that we have to have that understanding in order to understand what's going on today. And if we do have that understanding, what is happening today makes perfect sense. 
because we've constructed this society and these systems that bring us to this moment. And so I just think that it's it's amazing. And as someone who has been, you know, doing my best to build my informed historical perspective, sometimes I take for granted that this isn't necessarily common knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, the history of enslavement, Jim Crow, Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement. So that's profoundly important to bringing to the conversation in a contemporary sense about racism. So I just want to recognize that you've been building for decades. Yeah, well, and I think I got to the point where I can I can write about contemporary topics, particularly in the field of education, because of that history work that I've been, uh, the history that I've been studying. And what, what I find, Spirit, is a lot of the stuff that's, that is said today on these issues, folks were saying that, you know, in you know, the, the periods of time surrounding the Civil War. So really the discussion is not new, the framing of it is new, but the, the vision and the initiatives that, that, you know, civil rights pioneers were undertaking in these different time periods, it does measure up to the same things we're battling with today. I think that's also equally important to acknowledge. So your, your experience is just amazing. You're an adjunct professor in the history department at Dickinson College and work as director of equity and instruction at the Bond Educational Group. You recently founded the Equity Institute for Race Conscious Pedagogy, advancing anti-racist scholarship to help educators center race in the curriculum, which I'm really excited to talk about. But before we dive into that, as well as your book, another one of my podcast pillars is Sankofa in essence, going back in order to come forward. So I'd like to talk about your upbringing and anything that you'd like to share about your family roots. Okay, great. Um, Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. Uh, So I was born in Bradford, but raised in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So the the capital city of Pennsylvania. Um, I had a really diverse uh, upbringing, but as we both know, diversity alone doesn't give you the tools and the knowledge to deal with, with inequity. And to understand it. So I was really fortunate in, in the diverse background, both being from the city and the schools I went to. But the really what got me into this work was uh, the experience of my one of my siblings. Uh, I have a sibling, a sister who is Korean. Uh, my, my brother and I, so there's three of us, we and my parents included, we all assumed that she was just experiencing the same things that we experienced growing up. You know, she had her last name. People would come over to the house and everybody inside the house spirit was treated the same. Uh, and then we assumed whenever we would leave the home that we all had very similar experiences in terms of the way people treated us and how the system worked for us, the education system, sports, going to our jobs. And that wasn't the case for her. And uh, there was a point about 20, a little, little over 20 years ago where she was going through what I now understand is like a racial and ethnic identity crisis, meaning that she uh, hit a point of her life where she had a racial awakening and she was dealing with things and she had no one to go home and talk to about that because we we had established spirit of colorblind household. You know, the, the thought that if we treat, assume that everybody has the same experiences and everybody is the same, then, then there's not an issue that needs to be dealt with if we just ignore um, uh, these uh, inequities that exist and what my sister was dealing with. So there was actually a detachment that occurred for a year, maybe a little bit over a year. And it was during that time when I started to do uh, studies about civil rights history. And for that, that's when it clicked to me, uh, you know, that my sister was dealing with, you know, being treated as a perpetual foreigner, 
uh, at the same time also being treated in the monolith that we know as the model minority myth. You know, I just feel like as a sibling, I, I you know, was, was failing her. So that's what lit a fire uh, for me to get into this particular field. Um, at the same time, I have an athletic background. I've, I coached I've, I've recently retired, but I coached football, high school football for 22 years. And a lot of the stuff that you and I will probably talk about today, I, I was seeing on my own on these football teams that I was coaching. All these equity gaps that exist in school systems also exist on sports teams. The, 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 the talk about it, uh, creating a sense of belonging with students, with people at your place of employment, uh, I saw that happening on the sports teams, even when I played it years before that. So that kind of just shaped my mind uh, to the point where I'm at today. And then finally, Spirit, um, you know, I now have, my wife and I have two children, age six, and uh, our son is age six, our daughter is three. You know, I, I've seen this country's racial divides at the macro level, meaning the national news. I've seen it at the historical level and the research that you mentioned. I've seen it at the micro level in schools. So I know it's my responsibility to raise my kids, my wife included. So our responsibility for our kids to be socially conscious, you know, to be proactive and forthright with how our, how our children develop, not just physically and emotionally, but also with their social understanding of what other people are going through. And that's what I take from my background and, and the dealings with my siblings and everything else I've been involved in. Thank you for sharing that. One of the key questions that I love to ask my guests about is about the awareness of race and I'm glad you can see me so you can see my gigantic air quotes because full acknowledgement of the mythology of race and the creation of it as a social construct. But my question is, when is the first time that you became aware of race? I could talk about this for a while. I'll, I'll try to be as succinct as I can. I lived in the city of Harrisburg, but I lived on the edge of it. And uh, one of the first planned developments, a place called Bellevue Park. Now it sits right across the street from Harrisburg High School, the city high school. My siblings and I did not go to Harrisburg School District. At the time that the district was going through some things where it got taken over by the city. Uh, my, my parents are public school folks, but just what was going on in the city at the time, my parents wanted to send us to, to, uh, to a private school. So we went to the private Catholic school in, in, in Harrisburg. But all my friends, they lived deeper into the city. So I would travel back and forth from my house to my friend's house. And we did a lot of walking in the city, you know, so it wasn't so much we were getting driven to our friend's house that all lived in the suburbs. We just walked to each other's houses in the city. So um, I would notice right away the, the lack of, of investment or the devaluation of the neighborhoods where my friends lived. And then I would go back in my neighborhood and I would see it much differently. So like that value gap that Eddie Glaude has written about a couple of years ago um, in Democracy in Black, like I didn't have a language for that until I read his book, but that's basically what I was sensing as I was in my 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 adolescence and in, and in teenage years. There's times when I was with friends and uh, racial slurs would be directed at them, uh, or sometimes the racial slur would be said to me about the people I was with. So all of this is happening when I'm you know 13 years old, 12, 13, 14 years old, heading into high school. So th those are my first experiences. So my my racial awakening. Um, in that sense, occurred probably later than, than some of my friends, but it, you know, pretty much the start of my teenage years. Again, in that sense, but I still had a lot of flaws, as you know, because you do this work for so long, Spirit, that you know that, that anti-racism is an ongoing thing. So you really challenge yourself every single day um, on it. So I clearly had more challenges to do and, and understand it, but I knew that early that there wasn't anything funny 
about racist jokes or anti-Semitic jokes or sexist jokes. I, like, I, I never really responded to, to that kind of humor um, at a young age. And I think it was because I had, I had an awareness of my environment. So you mentioned that you were raised to be colorblind and you speak about that in your book and in your work and how colorblindness can be a hindrance to really facing racism head on. Can you speak about that? Yeah, so I, colorblind, the, the idea of colorblindness is really the biggest obstacle for uh, someone like yourself, myself, to, to, to get above the hurdle when trying to connect with people. I mean, what do you do? There's two things I often think of. Uh, what do you do when you've heard your entire life um, all men are created equal when talking about the, the declaration. And what do you do when your, your teachers your whole life get to the point of class where you're talking about the civil rights movement or Martin Luther King and you hear the phrase, um, to paraphrase, but I want to be treated by the, the content of my character, not the color of my skin. So what do you do when you hear those two phrases, your entire, you're white and you hear them your entire life. And both of them give the facade that um, colorblindness is the best approach to deal with with um, people from non-dominant and racialized groups. I don't think Martin Luther King Jr. was was meaning in his 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 phrase that he didn't want people to see his color. I think he legitimately was saying, "I want you to judge me by the content of my character, but still see me as a Black American." Right. So we get these we meaning most white folks, I don't want to categorize every white person as being the same, but most white folks, we hear these things all of our lives and no one ever challenges that. It makes us think differently about, about those, those two phrases. Uh, and so we, we hit a point of our lives in adulthood perhaps, or maybe even in, in high school where it be, then becomes difficult to really listen and um, hear what your friends of color are saying that they have different experiences because their, their neighborhoods are policed differently than your neighborhood is policed. So it's difficult to understand that. So the, there are flaws embedded in colorblindness, meaning that the tenets of colorblindness is marked with, with European or white cultural standards, that those values and approaches to life end up getting gilded as universal values as opposed to a factor of white supremacy. Colorblindness disguises white supremacy, as you know, because it, it's white people in power that establishes these standards. So the local languages and the local, local culture and the local identities and the histories, colorblindness neglects all of that by forcing upon um, folks of non-dominant groups assimilation. Uh, as it pertains to education, colorblind, um, uh, the practice of colorblind teaching, or pedagogy shifts attention away or shifts attention to individual behavior rather than looking at the institutions or the policies. So people see racism as an individual thing to, you know, to look at the Ku Klux Klan or the skinheads or the alt-right um, as opposed to institutional structure. And colorblindness presents, really presents a surface level or a cursory perspective that, that the reason we study history is so we don't repeat mistakes made in the past. And then there becomes nothing critical about that approach to, to teaching and learning. And we therefore never learn how to address injustice since injustices have, have, I'm doing your thing with the air quotes, apparently worked itself out over time. You know, so the mindset is one last time to return to my, my life experiences. If you don't acknowledge someone's race, then that problem will go away. And that's problematic, as you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. 
that's problematic because if I teach my children to not see color, if I teach my students to not see color, then they'll come away or come to think that then there's something wrong with not being white. And then the conversation ends right there. There's no need to have any critical analysis because we're done. <laughs> That's it. It's we're colorblind and we're just going to stay there. And there's no need to look at the institutional elements of it. I mean, so many thoughts are coming to me, um, in particular, Dr. D'Angelo's work around her, a chapter in her book, White Fragility on generalized whiteness and how being white is not seen as racialized. And so the consequences of whiteness are not examined as the consequences of being black or being of color are a lived experience and examined. So you have that thought running through my mind. And also, if you can't see my color, then how could you acknowledge my experience in life? And how could you believe that there is an experience when I tell you that there is? It makes me think about a lot of different things. You're making me think about a lot of different things too. I mean, you, you cross the intersections and you say, you know, you can say the same thing about sex and gender. Males might not see what women go through in board meetings and in school and discipline and everything else because they haven't experienced it. And if it was something that I didn't experience, again, we're talking race or gender um, or sexuality, then, then those things don't exist because I haven't witnessed it myself. Much of the, uh, much of the stuff we're talking about right now, because you, you, you mentioned D'Angelo, and what she's talking about. I mean, the ultimate privilege is the fact that white folks don't have to think about how their race is going to impact their day. You know, I don't have to think about, you know, when I wake up in the morning, you know, the space I'm going to go into is dominated by other white people, the school, the shopping mall, the sporting event, you know, we're talking pre-COVID here, you know, but just, you know, just to speak hypothetically. So I don't have to think when I go into these spaces. But the few times then when I'm challenged and I've had them, um, and this has all helped, uh, you know, when I am the, 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 uh, the minority in the room, I'm conscious of that. You know, I'm conscious of, of what my behavior, what kind of attention that is going to bring to me. But there's very few times in my life when I've, I've sensed that. So, I mean, that's what you're bringing up. Yeah, and you, you know, I, you talk about white spaces, and I think it's important to acknowledge white spaces and how they permeate one's entire livelihood from the home, the neighborhood, the school. Uh, I've heard you speak about the importance of acknowledging white spaces and how that presents itself, you know, how that manifests itself and um, impacts our life experience. Can you talk about the importance of acknowledging white spaces? Yeah, the, the, what, you're, what you're not finding there is a lot of cultural diversity. You know, you've talked about race as a construct about 10 minutes ago. You know, you mentioned that. And, 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 and so going back 100 and 125 years ago when uh, all these different European nationalities were, were, were blending together into what we now know today as, as whiteness or, or the white race, there on the surface becomes the absence of that cultural or that ethnic diversity. So here's, here's the things that Irish folks celebrate. Here are the things that Italian folks celebrate. Here are the things that German folks celebrate and so on and so forth. So that is missing. And, and since that celebration of that cultural diversity becomes missing from these spaces like a school or whatever else you can imagine, then when there is a celebration of another form of, of ethnic diversity, then a lot of white folks ask the question, you know, why does that exist when I'm not saying this for me? Okay, um, so that, that's, that's what you're speaking to right now. Uh, and that, that, that goes back to the whole notion of, of making it difficult for, for white folks to, to really accept and appreciate, to acknowledge 
the existence of, of, of racial barriers that exist in, in America's, you know, uh, various institutions that we have. That's really interesting you mentioned that because one of the interesting aspects of my life is I grew up in a predominantly white town and my brothers and sisters received a lot of discrimination and racism. And what ended up happening is uh, my parents split up and a couple of my siblings and I moved with my mother to Ottawa, Canada, and it was incredibly multicultural. And for me, that was an oasis because we were, I was among so many different ethnic groups and there was so much culture and different languages and it was amazing. And in particular at that specific time, because in Canada there had been um, an opening for different immigrant groups to be welcomed to Canada. So it literally changed my entire life. You know, I'm just thinking about that as a frame in terms of you might not have that configuration of classroom, but the information is there that we can share about the globe and our different ethnicities and customs and cultures and how important that is to the conversation. So I just wanted to mention that. Okay, so let's talk about your book, Race Conscious Pedagogy, Disrupting Racism at Majority White Schools. I just love the way you start off your book, especially in light of what I just mentioned describing an experience with your son, Carter. I think it really sets the tone for how to model honest conversations with children and adults alike. Can you please share that experience with my listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. So my son and I have, uh, pre-COVID, we, the moment he turned two years old, he and I go to the movies. And uh, we had done this for like two years at this point, um, but we'd never caught something to eat like like dinner before the film we, i just kind of time it up so we missed the previews because that's another 20 minutes you know and you have a four-year-old sitting there you want to maximize the time that you're in a theater but anyway we went to a i intentionally took him to a chinese restaurant and i had been there a number of times and i know that everybody all the all the all the servers in there their english is a second language and you know my sister who i've mentioned is korean but she she speaks english she doesn't she doesn't have an accent so this was going to be the first time he was really going to hear an accent. So I kind of predicted what would come out of his mouth. And so we sat down and the waitress came over and asked us for the meal. And uh, right away, he said to me, uh, Daddy, she sounds funny. And, you know, she's standing right there. And uh, most people would, most most parents, white parents would would really shush him. But again, I, this was premeditated. And so my, my initial reaction to him was, uh, yeah, and that's a beautiful accent, isn't it? And... Uh, that gave us an opportunity after we placed our order then to then talk about um, the language. And I, I took my phone out and I, I, I pulled up a bunch of video clips from China and also and also the Chinese language, uh, Mandarin and such. And we had a conversation about all of that, you know, for the 20 minutes before we saw the film. You know, so th this was my first attempt at, at him at his age to um, feel like that it was okay to acknowledge people with their, you know, their, their different accents and, and ultimately different skin colors and, and everything else. Uh, so that's what that story was all about. The idea about conscious raising. I feel like it really, it's a tangible example of setting the tone for the book and the work that you do and modeling what we as people who strive to be anti-racist need to pay attention to. I think that nine times out of 10, it's embarrassing, it's shameful, everyone wants to just calm that moment down, try to try to try to move away from it as quick as possible, but you're leaning into it with your children, with your family, and in your work. 
so so think about I mean think about what what shushing really means right so you play a game of hide and seek I play a game of hide and seek with my kids and shh, you know so so now our daughter doesn't find us we don't want to get caught doing something or you have some big animal coming towards you and you're worried about getting hurt so you're shh, make sure this doesn't see us so now if you're now doing that when someone when your son says why does he have brown skin if you and you say Shh, that's saying something to the child that there's something wrong with that you know, our skin is white his skin is brown there's something wrong then so i'm going to shush that so that's the i guess the the subtext of that whole story which i think is beautiful so so now so now in the household because, because our daughter is three we have a number of uh uh, baby dolls of color. So we have black and brown baby dolls around. And, and in fact, uh, we're filming this a little bit before the Christmas holiday. Our, our, our elf on the shelf <laughs> is an elf of color <laughs> that we have um, that I believe my, my father-in-law bought for us just because of the, 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 the habit that we have around the household. And that's another one of my pillars is representation. Mm-hmm. I think that it's so, so important. When I look around the world, like whether it's on social media or in a store or online, and I just see the beautiful diversity represented. And I think back to my childhood on maybe there was one doll that was black or brown and it was just a complete anomaly. And what that does to a young girl's subconscious. I think that's really important, like representation for all children to see children from around the world in different colors, different languages. I just think that's really important. Yeah, I agree. So let's dive into your book. First things first, can you please describe the definition of race-conscious pedagogy? It's a race-conscious pedagogy. I'd like to preface my response with this statement. In schools, the biggest barrier to reaching every student that sits in our classroom is ideological. Everyone in education talks a good game about inclusionary practices. But what's really head-scratching is that for as much as educators decide to enter this field because they love children or because they feel it's rewarding to work with students, race seems to be the barrier that no one touches. So while we have practical strategies to create inclusive classrooms, sadly, there are too many educators that don't believe in this approach. You know, in some cases, you have administrators that kind of feign equity. There are principals that kind of fail in their duties to tell the teachers to teach with an equity lens and implement certain practices. And then you have teachers that receive the practical equity strategies and skills, but never the emotional investment in those strategies. So um, you just have people in every, every level of education not investing in this. So that's why I say it's an ideological problem. So race-conscious pedagogy is an approach to, to teaching and learning that tries to disrupt this apprehensive and uh, race-evasive behavior by the educator. As an educator, I have no control over how a school district or a school building implements equity practices. And when I say equity practice, usually there's like four data practices, family and community engagement, discipline, and then um, whether resources are being fair, fairly and justly uh, distributed. What I can control spirit is my classroom. So I can make my classroom an inclusive space. So what I've done is uh, frame everything that I do with a critical race lens. So I, I teach my students with a critical race lens. I write my curriculum with the same lens and I tailor my teaching style with a critical race lens, you know, to use my discipline to scrutinize institutional racism. So I think there's, there's three ways to, to now simplify 
the explanation of what race conscious pedagogy is. There's three ways to it. One is the curriculum. So the content uh, and the skills that are being taught. So the content is driven by deconstructing institutional racism. The, the skills are driven toward having students do service projects. And with that, what, what I try to do in writing that curriculum is provide students two things, not really my phrase, I'm not taking credit for this phrase, but it's windows and mirrors. So you try to create windows in your classroom for white students um, so they can see the various cultural, cultural history and cultural diversity that exists. So they're getting that. And then the mirrors for students of color. So it's not just a representation to make sure we talk about you know, the history of uh, things like um, uh, uh, the civil rights movement and here was slavery and here's the abolitionists, here's, here's uh, Jim Crow and here's what civil rights workers are. But it's other stereotype busting representations in class. So it, it, it's, it's people of color and women and gay folk in positions of leadership beyond just trying to dismantle you know, discriminatory structures. The second part is the pedagogy. So um, uh, the, 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 these courses are text-based and they provide counter voices to the, the presumptions and the stereotypes that the students already have. Also, the, the, the way that the course is taught, these courses are taught is that everything is democratized. So it empowers the student voices. It takes away the authority of the educator instead of standing in front and lecturing all the time. You know, it, it's text-based. So we read the text, we base our conversations and the learning on the text, but that allows the students the opportunity to make their personal connections with them. And in that way, that's the diversity of thought that's now being represented. So even in majority white schools, where you might have a classroom of 30 and six students, five students in that classroom are, are students of color, that allows really the window to be open for you know, students of color to share their experiences, but also you know, diversity among white folks too. You, know, you have a, a, a white Jewish student right, would now be sharing experience that the white Christian student would have never heard before. So everything becomes democratized. And I think that's how you, is another way that you work the diversity into that. And because of that democratized approach, you're seeing students feel empowered or therefore included, or they feel that sense of belonging in your classroom. And everything is driven towards fixing things. So everything is driven towards critical thinking, to not accept the status quo, and a way to, to try to perfect our society. Finally, the third part of race conscious pedagogy is influencing your colleagues. So to, 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 to be the leader in your school building, to try to build a culture of, of, of racial equity, but uh, then also intersectional equity. Wow. So now I have a million more questions. <laughs> so I'm trying to think. Um, you've described a variety of different scenarios in your book, but can you kind of paint a picture what does that look like in a classroom? Like, what's an example of a conversation or a subject matter or a text that you've read? How does that unfold? What does it look like? What is the learning experience for the young people? Mm -hmm. First of all, let me say that race consciousness can be embedded in any discipline. So this, is just, just, this just does not apply to a history class or any social studies class for that matter. My hope is that we, we see teachers across disciplines developing their, their courses right in their curriculum with a race conscious lens. Um, and it's not going to look the same. A math class will be different. It's more of the teaching style in a math class than it is a, a history class. But that said, in, in my classes, so what, what I've done is uh, I break the, the course uh, into various units that address different ethnic groups in the country. So instead of making a, a course about one racial or ethnic group, 
we, we, we cover it all. So we open up with uh, white, an examination of whiteness. And then we go to an examination of African-American studies and Latinx studies and Asian-American studies and Native American studies, et cetera. We have units on Jewish American studies and Islamic American studies as well. Um, but what I'll do, let, let's just take whiteness, for instance, because that seems to be the, the theme of our conversation. So to teach a topic like white privilege, you, you might imagine, you do the work, you know how, how contentious that is, could be if approached a wrong way, right? Because you're going to have people feel like uh, they're being attacked. The beauty of this kind of um, work in a classroom is that you know, Spirit, that the work has to be sustained. You can't walk into a group, an organization, and do one talk with them and affect any change. That's not going to happen. It has to be sustained. And you're not going to get people to buy in that are otherwise resistant to the work that you're trying to do. So the beauty of having a class like this is that it becomes a sustained conversation. So you can throw resources that the students will read and then discuss those resources. So if you take like white privilege, I don't start teaching white privilege. I actually start with race as a construct. So what I'll, and I'll work to privilege. So what I'll do with race as a construct is I'll put in front of them a number of sources. Usually it's around five or six sources. And um, some of those sources, most of the sources are talking about race is socially constructed and here's how. And, but there's also about two sources, maybe more, that are people that disagree with that argument. So they're getting both sides here in that sense. But we're able to look at those sources and then have conversations. And that conversation focuses on uh, the notion of civility, how, how people are behaving and how certain groups might be attacked. I mean, if you take a look at the, the decision over the death penalty the other day and compare that to other, sort of, other cases of, of uh, white folks who, who have been indicted or charged that aren't facing the death penalty you know, for taking life, the, you know, that, that speaks to civility. I, I use in my class the story of Serena Williams who lost to Naomi Osaka in, in, in 2018 and how she was treated by the media for her, air, your air quotes here, your, your, her lack of civility on the court. Whereas a lot of white men tennis players have done the, the same thing she did and were in no way called what she was called. Uh, but that's just an example. So we're looking at civility. We're looking at manifest destiny, you know, just a total disregard of the people on the continent as folks were moving, you know, to the West Coast. And then this myth of the melting pot. And what that myth of the melting pot, which, which is colorblindness today without calling it that, you know, the idea that we, that we have all these different um, cultural groups represented in a country and they willingly melted into the, you know, this Americanness or whiteness. And that's not the case, but the idea is if someone who doesn't measure that standard, they become, now we get to talk about othering. So they become racially othered. So that's the progression through race as a something socially constructed to create a caste system, which I know you have talked about in the past in your, your previous shows. But all of that creates a caste system. It creates hierarchies, both with um, intelligence and athletics and who, who the, 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 the prize winner of the household is, what beauty means, um, all of that stuff. We've created all these caste systems that are racially driven. And you have to understand how all that became socially constructed. That allows me to then move to something more specific and that's like talk about the one drop rule. So now I throw sources in front of them where we discuss the one drop rule through history. And now if they, if I had students that didn't really believe race is a construct in spite of the previous conversation, now we have these actual state laws, you know, that defined what race was. Well, who, what, who, what constitutes blackness, right? In, in the one drop rule. And so now there starts to be this shift in their thinking.
um, about this idea. And when we finish that discussion about uh, race as a construct, othering, the caste system, the one drop rule, I give them a formula and I say, well, what does this do? Civility plus social categories, your caste equals privilege. You know, and like, I don't just give that to them. They figure that out on their own. So now if you have people that didn't necessarily believe that race was socially constructed, they see it um, not just through the scholarship and now examples. Uh, they didn't know how othering works. They see it. If they didn't believe the caste system worked, they now see that. And if they didn't believe in privilege, this notion of white privilege, they now see that all of that comes to create privileges that exist. I don't know if I directly answered your question, but that's what came to mind. When you Absolutely. I'm just thinking of myself sitting in that setting and just thinking about my own evolution of understanding and uh, as much as my mother as a civil rights veteran spoke about you know the importance of a b and c it was literally sitting in an auditorium at a black history month event hearing from dr ivan van sterma and he literally broke down all like basically everything that you're saying you know broke down this structure and strategy behind engineering the system and I remember myself and my peers walking out of there, just our minds blown. Because you know, now that I'm an educator and I speak to young people, they feel really cheated. And I felt cheated. So I'm wondering, what do the students tell you about their experience in being in that setting and having that amazing understanding and transformation of knowledge? So I have a an assortment of students in the class. Most students that take the class are white. Most of them are, are female. I, I have a good, uh, a large number of students of color in there, but just most of them, most of the students are white because of the school that I'm in. So they walk out of the course with different experiences. Let me say first, they take the course for different reasons. Some, some students take the course for the content, right? They want to talk about these, these topics. Other students take the course because I, I mentioned before, it's, it's like project driven. So uh, um, that means that they're putting together basically uh, dissertation defenses, two of them, by the end of the year. They want to learn how to do that. So they want to learn how to properly re read. They want to learn how to properly research and properly write. They also want to learn and get experience public speaking. So I have students that take the class for that reason, and I have students that take the class for both, to get both out of it. When they leave, uh, more of the liberal-minded students in the class, they express their appreciation for the course giving them language to talk about things that are in their heart um, and on their minds and they don't know how to articulate themselves. So they get the language to do that it, um, and also sustain th their, own, their own education. Uh, for conservative students, conservative-minded students that take the course, they also leave the class very positive. Um, in some way, they're, 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 um, their skills at, at educating themselves in their particular position, they can do that because again, we're, we're here's a voice, here's a counter voice, here's a voice, here's a counter voice. So they understand that concept of, of developing an argument, but what they find themselves in not getting too specific here um, on the record, uh, but what they find themselves is, is understanding these issues differently. And whether they say it now or later, they may say it later, is that their positions on these particular topics do change. So uh, they become more open to having conversations with people and understanding that the, that experience is a lot different. 
it doesn't change like their political party. This class doesn't do any of that, which is the perception from the outside, as you know this because of a recent executive order. So the, the course is not designed to change that, the, you know, and that's not at all what happens. But when it comes to these issues, you have, you have students of all backgrounds and, and any political leaning, they're being informed on this. And they see that, man, the, the evidence does exactly, the evidence does exist that tells me that these inequities, the arguments over these inequities are, are legitimate arguments. So you speak about the backlash that comes along with creating mm -hmm. these spaces, race conscious classrooms. Yeah. What does that backlash look like, feel like, how do you deal with it? Well, uh, in a way, I'm fortunate that I do come from a, a coaching background. And as a head coach, you face a lot of, you have to have thick skin. So when you invest in this work, that's the price you pay. So the, the backlash is the price you pay. So let me first position myself. Anything that I experience, any backlash that I experience, any complaint that is made of me is nothing in comparison to, to what people of color have experienced um, in the country, both, both personally and systemically. Uh, so I recognize that. But still, when I have a member of the community or a parent of a student or, or someone um, attack the work that I do, it still stings a little bit, you know, as if it's dismissive of 20 years of the work I've been doing in this field, you know. So really, it's I, I, I talk with my wife about it. I get it off my chest and I'm able to sleep. You know, what I see is that's like your that's your case in point of fragility. You know, when you're having someone um, criticize the work that, that you're doing, it's funny because it's not funny. It's sad because the people that criticize these courses, the courses I teach, I, I've taught this course that you're asking about for four years now, they're not in the class. You know, the people are from the outside. So it comes from everybody from the outside, you know, as opposed to anyone, anyone that sits in the, the classes that I teach or even the trainings that I give, you know, they're not going to say that Todd Mealy is un-American or Todd Mealy is divisive. They're not going to say that. But people from the outside that aren't sitting in the, the, the sessions that you give, you know, or any one of others classes that, 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 that are being taught like this, they're not going to say that these things are un-American or divisive. Really interesting. Our, our spouses deserve awards. <laughs> right. Yes, you do the, you do the same thing. Um, <laughs> On that note, I'm in constant conversations with educators and parents and really anybody who's interested in, in becoming involved in uprooting racism. And so in my experience for Black people and people of color, this is a lived experience. So it's not a choice to be involved in this work or to have to have these difficult conversations and talk to their children very openly and candidly about current events and what's going on. But for many white teachers and parents that I speak to, there's a choice to engage or not. For those who do want to engage, many say they don't know where to start. That is a very, common conversation that I engage in. And based on what you just described, you know, you have invested decades of work and you really understand racism and the construction of racism and therefore the way in which to go about reverse engineering it or bringing about an understanding or an awareness or a comfortability about even just speaking about it. So that being said, what is your advice to anyone really, but in particular, white teachers who say they don't know where to start? Number one, realize that uh, this is going to take a significant amount of, of one, self-reflection and two, education. Uh, because race is so nuanced, it, it is, um, 
not as simple as as many folks might think. Like you can't read one book by Ibram Kendi or George Yancey, you know, or <laughs> Terrence Roberts, and think you got it figured out. <laughs> um, it's going to take some some reflecting on where you stand on these issues, and then go and read about these various issues, but over and over again. So it's it's sustained. I think we said at the, at the top of your show about how anti-racism is ongoing. Uh, so even the, I, I've, I've been thinking and reading and studying and speaking on this for two decades, but I still learn and I still proactive, like I, I proactively, you know, find the literature and read it and continue to educate myself, even about stuff that I'm familiar with. I kind of, I want to read and listen to it and never, and, and, and watch shows on it um, continuously. So it really is going to take that. So the self-reflection and the sustained education, and then see if you can find some people at that point that would be, that would serve as more of a coach for you. You know, I, I think not, not a mentor, but, but, but a coach so someone who, who might be willing to uh, give you some, some, some skills and some advice, uh, some tools on how to be this race conscious educator and then check in. You know, I mean, that's what a coach does, you know, so they teach you the skills and they let you go and do it and then they give you feedback. So, so if there are people willing and there are people that are willing to do that, then, um, and, you know, that becomes the, 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 the approach there. And then, and then finally, the recognition that the work you're going to do is not, I mean, it's not easy and it's not, it's not easy. And the students that right away will see through any type of um, anything that you're doing that's not sincere. In other, you can't fake things like um, hip hop pedagogy, which is not at all what I do, but it was a recent conversation I was having with someone. So that just kind of popped in my mind, you know, just because you have students that are interested in that particular topic and you want to incorporate it in a classroom, but you're not really familiar with it, that, that wouldn't be the right, right approach. But I think by investing in the texts that will allow you to direct conversations in the classroom and the type of, and the level of learning that happens in the classroom, if you're concentrating most of what you do on the text. Your lesson plans are based on that. Your discussions are based on the text. And that should make someone's job easier that's trying to do this for the first time. Thank you for that. Sure. Racism is so powerful. And one of the ongoing themes that I'm hearing and seeing, especially with you know our newfound reckoning with racial justice, racial injustice, is just how damaging racism is to everyone white people included, and just the obliviousness that it creates and kind of the fish in water, not knowing water is not a part of your awareness until it's taken from you. And I really don't have a question, but just in reading your book, I feel like you're, you're tackling that issue in terms of trying to create that awareness, but I'm still trying to put my finger on, like really creating an awareness around the self-awareness of whiteness and and how that manifests itself and then the next train of thought that comes in for me is dr d'angelo again which she speaks about there's a problem in thinking that having an inherited racism which you know we're all breathing the fog means you're a bad person and therefore there's like a hindrance to accepting it acknowledging it and being able to speak about it with any level of comfort so yeah, not necessarily a question, but just something that popped into my head. And so, so I think I have a lot to say to what you were doing, and I'll I'll try to keep this also um, succinct. I, let me give you a little bit of history first. So the origins of white supremacy, white supremacist groups, the KKK, you know, 1865, you know, 
goes dormant after 1872. It comes back in 1915. It worked to protect a government that was exclusive. You know, Jim Crow policy, lynching law, immigration restriction, you know, from Eastern Europeans. And then the civil rights movement changes the approach of white supremacists. Since the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 64, the Voting Rights Act in 65, now supremacist groups, which is a lot more than the KKK now, you know, they see the government as the enemy. And now the government is now, at least on the surface, now racially and governmentally inclusive. You know, so to be willing to hold racial sensitivity training and equity professional development, it's willing to, to have affirmative action policy, it's willing to have laws guaranteeing the enforcement of the 14th Amendment, the 15th and 19th Amendment as well, and to have laws protecting religious diversity and LGBTQ diversity. That's how white supremacy has changed. In the process, and I'm going to say something here that will take a lot of white listeners perhaps to, to really ponder upon of how dangerous it has become. You know, so the idea of keeping the status quo, how dangerous that, that is, you know, white supremacy argued could be at fault for the fact that we cannot develop a healthcare system that really treats the needs of all people. And if you take a look at these different institutions and potential policies that could be placed, why is there a delay on things that would be for the betterment of all people in this country? health reasons, mental health reasons, physical health reasons, and we just can't jump the hurdle on these things. World War, the Civil War was fought to maintain slavery. It resulted in the, in the death of 600,000 people. You know, other wars have been fought over racism. So that's, I think, what you're getting at with your comment, you know, about, you know, what exactly is white, whiteness and white supremacy doing to all people? In a way, it's, it's, it's killing folks, you know, and you see, it's not just killing Black and brown folks is killing white allies that are involved in, in the freedom struggle, but it's also killing um, uh, white folks that don't pay attention to these racial issues uh, that refuse to, to kind of listen to, to people that are offer, offering life-saving things that would otherwise benefit all people, economically too. So to the naysayers, what would you say to someone who is not fully on board with um, the fact that racism hurts us all. Well, as I mentioned before, I, I, I don't think you, you could jump into a crowd of people, a crowd of naysayers and convince them right away. I do think that over time, what you do is uh, find a way to make and it, one of these issues personal to them. And when it becomes personal to them, then they're really opening to get beneath the surface and explore and exploring these issues. I mean, heck, look at the story that, you know, I talked about with my, my, my sister and then, you know, also what I'm trying to prevent my, my children from doing. That was personal to me. So I, I, I grew up in a diverse neighborhood. I had these, these feelings that um, racial, racist humor wasn't funny to me, but yet I was still a colorblind individual. So it took something personal to really waken me up to, to what you're asking me about, so to, to these issues. So that's what I think you do to these naysayers. You, you find a way over time where it becomes personal for them and then spare, you empower them. So you find a way to, to make them part of the, the, the group making the decisions. You make them a stakeholder in this. And now that they're invested in that way, two things will happen. They'll continue to learn about the topic because they're now working with a group of people and they're asked to be part of the leadership. And, and two, those other naysayers that may be following that individual 
they see that individual working for progress. So now that that those followers may now turn the corner as well. You understand what I'm trying to say? Can I ask you a question here? Absolutely. <laughs> for, 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 for just the moment here, let me be um, a contrarian for a brief moment and ask this question. Is it reasonable to get everyone with, with all of our thoughts on this and how important these topics are to the two of us and your listeners can chime on this maybe later in social media, but is it possible to expect every American to learn the history of anti-Black racism? I'll answer that, but I, I just, I, I pose that because that's, that's one of, that's, that's the subtext of really your, your comment and your question here too. Is it possible for us to get to the place where we can get every person to learn the history of anti-Black racism where we can make real progress to change the institutional structures across the United States. I'm not saying tomorrow, but over time. What do you think? It's my hope. It's my hope that, that these conversations and these topics and these elements of humanity that are so crucial to our everyday lives and existence would one day deem the recognition and support of the importance of knowing math algebra of knowing, you know, these subjects that we deem so crucial and critical and central in my experience, in my life experience, in my professional experience, in my educational experience, this is, I would argue in some ways more important than some subjects that are considered core curriculum. And so, I mean, that's my hope because I feel like it's, it's a key to unlocking our interconnected nature and how detrimental to our humanity these divisions and this oppression is. So that's the way I look at it. Um, Is it possible? I feel like we're up against incredible forces to make that happen, but it's my hope. Because when I speak to young people, I'm looking at like fresh faces and there's young people, black, white, they're so eager and excited to learn and they have this moral compass that's so pure and so fresh and they know right from wrong. They know fair from unfair. And so it's almost like we need to look to children as an example. I, I love that you said children. I totally agree with you. I, I wanted to ask that question just to put, put your listeners, have them think about this as well. I, I do think there's people that we won't be able to reach just to, just to be realistic. There are oh, people that we won't be able to reach. But if, if the last four years showed us anything is that we need to this anti-intellectualism we've been in four or five years here shows us, shows us that we need an educated populace. I, while I think that's a good question about is it realistic that, that we can educate everybody on these topics, you have to try something different. And I think also that's the sports background in me. If something's not working, you're not going to continue to do the same thing. You're going to change it and try something new. Even if it doesn't work, you're still going to try something new. So I think we've seen that we needed educated populace here. Um, I want people to be informed. I think education uh, is, you know, the school system is, is, is how this needs to be, to be done. History itself gives us the, the rounding to understand a lot of these issues and helps us think critically about such topics. But high school, you know, is perhaps, college is too late. And co- you know, colleges and universities, Spirit, as you know, they've been the first to invest in ethnic studies and, and gender studies and, and everything, it, but, but it's too late. And, and that's what anti-racism work, a lot of it is unlearning and that's hard. I was in an anti-racism workshop and we literally did this activity where we like took two steps forward and then to the left and it was like this pattern and then 10 seconds later we were to reverse it and it, it was like so discombobulating. 
And so it was a great analogy to how difficult it is to unlearn this deep conditioning. I'm a huge proponent. I just absolutely love analogies and I just love you know, how you use your experience as a coach to describe the importance of your work. Can you just give me a snapshot of what you noticed in that realm and how you bring your experience from the sports world and coaching to your work? Yeah. When, when you and I do diversity, equity, inclusion work, I think we frame everything we do with, with equity. And then you're seeing diversity and inclusion embedded in that. But I think you, you would agree with me by saying that inclusion piece is, 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 is vital for changing the institutional structure of whatever you're, who you're working with. And that would be the biggest thing that I would see with coaching is when you have people on your, my team that I would see their body language change over time, their investment in practices, their investment in meetings, their investment in watching film, their investment in and uh, the off season would change when they feel like their role, they don't have a role on the team and they feel like their presence on the team is not valued. You know, it's like they're just taking up space. So when I would see that happening, I know that I knew that I was doing something wrong, right? So that's this ongoing work, right? So like, even though I'm invested in this work, there's still mistakes that I make. So then I would then try to address it. Um, and so by my last, my last 10 years coaching, um, one of the biggest things that I, that I would try to do with, with my teams was to, to make sure that everybody, like they specifically knew what their role was going to be, um, on the team. And then to make sure that me and my assistant coaches were, um, proactively making sure that we were, we were reinforcing the job that the kids were doing. And we were also investing in their lives beyond the sport we were coaching them with. So make sure that we were present in the other sports that they played or the, the, if they were in theater, we were going and watching them. So to invest in all that stuff, sometimes visiting them at work. Um, so that making them feel included was, was vital to any kind of success that we were doing. Um, and so that's the biggest piece that I was able to see and, and be able to carry that over into the, into the classroom. Another aspect is the, the diversity piece. So, I mean, you, you, you think that um, uh, sports is a place where you put race and ethnicity aside and everyone's a team but if i bet again if you're ignoring the fact that you have members of your team that are dealing with some things and you're totally negligent about what they're doing then what happens is what we call unlearning which happens in a classroom so like in a classroom if there's a teacher that doesn't respect the the culture and the language and the experiences that is impacting the life of, of this particular student a coach the same thing you know if there's a, if there's a reason why a player is coming late look into that reason as opposed to just punish the kid but then also when issues come up that are national in scope and they permeate the locker room if i'm ignoring them there's going to be division among the team because they have their differences because they have different experiences mm -hmm. so that has to be addressed so we try to be a proactive coaching staff that wouldn't neglect or ignore issues that are happening mainstream because they knew that they were, they were filtering into the conversations in the locker room. And then that's the same thing with the classroom. Then. 
that's so crystal clear to me. And I think that that's, that analogy is so applicable. And I think it just, the visual is very powerful. I just have a couple more questions. So I'd like your thoughts on this quote that I recently saw. Sonia Renee Taylor, who is a poet, activist, author, and leader. A couple months ago, I was on Instagram and I saw someone post a quote that she had espoused at one of her lives or one of her events. And she said, I don't want an ally because an ally means you came here to help me. How are you helping me solve the problem you caused? Why aren't I helping you solve the problem you caused? Why am I not the ally and you the actor? Why is blackness the responsibility holder and whiteness gets to be the helper? In light of our conversation, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Because it completely flipped the narrative for me. And I just, I feel like it, it's definitely in line with the work that you do. Yeah. So what happened this summer, you know, with the unprecedented uh, demonstrations that we saw in the spring and the summer, was that that made a lot of white folks pay attention to what was going on in the world. <clears throat> Sitting in my seat, I'm thinking <laughs> that's got to frustrate a lot of people of color, right? So that's got to frustrate a lot of black and brown folk <laughs> that now for the first time, white folks are acknowledging that there's something wrong. Um, well, what we were talking about in, in the summer was was policing in America, but but now there's something wrong with other things as well in corporate America and education. Um, so I knew that must have been frustrating uh, because in various ways, these all these issues, whether you're listening to music or you're reading scholarship or you're watching a film, all these different avenues, these issues spirit have been articulated to white America and white America has been ignorant of all of that. And the way that I look at it, at both the reaction to the um, George Floyd Black, Black Lives Matter inspired protest, but then also what you just read is that the, the, this disease of racism is in white America. It was created by white white Americans. It's in white America. So it should be a, a, an issue that's addressed and deconstructed and dismantled by white America. That is a driving force for what I do. Now, that understanding, I should say. But again, a lot of that understanding, you know, occurred because not just the personal experiences, but the but the history that I've been researching for for some time. And there's also times where I, I have to accept, and this doesn't, this doesn't frustrate me. I, I, I'm accepting of this, where people are skeptical about me. They don't know me, they're skeptical of me. Deservedly so, you know, um, the, I'm a white male and people don't know anything about me. It's, like, it's kind of like when Todd Allen, you know, when he came to visit my class, he didn't know anything about me and he, I'm sure he had skepticism. You know, he read this article about me, but was, was everything in that article just performative? You know, he wanted to see for himself if like I was for real. And I know like black parents, that send their children into the school system, there's skepticism behind that because there's history, you know, that that exists um, that white folks don't understand. So the, I think that quote is is spot on here, and it's deserving of a conversation in white America at large to really get, you know, to really have everybody understand that you know this this war being waged against anti-black racism, you know, should be fought by by white folks. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier in 2020, you founded the Equity Institute for Race Conscious Pedagogy, advancing anti-racist scholarship to help educators center race in the curriculum. Can you talk about that as we're bringing our conversation to a close and also for anyone who's listening, who I'm sure is going to be completely enthralled and interested in engaging with you, 
can you paint a picture of the work that you do there and how people can become involved? Oh, so the vision for the Institute is, uh, I, I've had it for, for quite some time now, about seven, eight years. And then I, I was able to um, really just finish up the book that we've been talking about uh, a year ago and then started to, to take steps towards launching the Institute. And so I'm a researcher. I think I'm a better researcher than I am a writer. Uh, so I want to, um, I want the Institute to be multifaceted. So I want to give opportunities for um, uh, students, but also people interested in this kind of work to get involved in the research so they can learn about researching that, that deals with anti-racist work. So that's one thing. Two is I want it to benefit educators. So I want the Institute to be able to produce uh, resources and tools that educators can use to, to change either their school building or their classroom into race conscious spaces. And that when I say resources or tools, that is that could be um, from lesson planning to curriculum writing. And so we, we provide you know, curriculum writing services or going into the schools themselves and speaking with folks on how to, how to, to do this work and, and create like equitable spaces in their schools. So, so we wanna provide those kinds of tools for, for educators, both classroom teachers, administrators and whatnot. Then we also, um, we have a publishing house to it. And there's a lot of people out there that have a lot of good ideas that have been invested in this work, but they may not be able to get their work out to the public um, in a different way. You know, so they may not be able to pick up a big time publisher, you know, because they're not Michael Eric Dyson, right? So, so we, we exist as an avenue for, um, for scholars that are invested in doing research and writing and they want to get their, their work out to the public. So we want to help folks be able to do that as well. So the Institute has a major book publication. It'll be published in two volumes, uh, released in 2020, the end of 2021, and then I think the end of 2022. So that's a collection of about 50, 50 authors. So it's a chapter book, two chapter books and, and dealing with all the topics that we hit on today. One volume will focus on uh, teach classroom teachers. Another volume will, will focus on the stakeholders, the people making the decisions for, for the schools at large. So, so that's what the Institute does. So we're multifaceted. That's amazing. I mean, when I think about what people can do, they can visit your website, they can look into the Institute because I mean, even when I think about myself and the work that I do, sometimes I feel like I'm on an island and you have created this Institute and this community to help people, you know, collectively drive this conversation and this work forward. So I think that that is incredibly important for our listeners, because I feel very fortunate to have listeners who range from people who are newly interested to this topic of conversation to middle, high school, elementary teachers, school superintendents, etc. And there's so much, there's a a big desire right now to want to become involved in all of those different levels, not necessarily knowing where to go. So that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. The, the, the Institute will be very blessed if we ever um, in some way collaborate with, with you. So. Well, thank you and vice versa. This <laughs> has been such a wonderful conversation. Can you please tell us where we can find you, your website, your social media. And then I have my signature question and you can go about your day. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, so my, uh, the, the Institute's website is raceconsciouspedagogy.org. Um, I have an email address at that site. It's Mealy, M-E-A-L-Y, at raceconsciouspedagogy.org. My uh, Twitter handle is just Todd Mealy, at Todd Mealy. Uh, Facebook is the same, Todd Mealy. And then I have a personal website, which is toddmealy.com. I want to thank you so very much. Your work is 
so powerful and so needed, so timely. I feel really lifted in having this conversation and, and glad to know that you're, you're out there doing such amazing work. And for my final question, Dr. Mealy, what are the roots of your spirit? My family, my family. Uh, so my, my parents, Tom and Maureen, my siblings, Tommy and Chrissy, and then my wife, Melissa, my children, Carter and Addie, Adeline. So they're the people that motivate me um, every single day to, to do this work, but also be the best version of myself. So I, I do appreciate you. I really like your closing question. And, and, and good luck to you with, uh, I know you're writing your mom's memoir and, and all the work you're doing. So good luck to you too. Thank you so much for such a wonderful interview and for the great work that you do. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Spirit, so much. Thank you.